Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. It was never really set out right, but um, I think there was this this sort of free-floating belief or series of beliefs that... The whiter you were, the colder you were, the scarcer things were, the more of them you had, the less of them everybody else had, and the less you talked about any of it. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Sarah Manguso is best known as an experimental essayist. She trained as a poet, but grew famous for her unusual autobiographical nonfiction books. As she says in our conversation, her work has mostly been in fragmented forms, like in her book 300 Arguments or Ongoingness, which is a meditation on an exhaustive diary she kept for 25 years. Most recently, she's done something she never, ever, ever thought she would do. She wrote a novel. Despite the fact that she'd been sure ever since her time as a writing student that she could never be a novelist and wasn't even sure that she liked novels, she came on the show to talk about how she came to write Very Cold People, her new book, which tries to capture something about the culture of the town she grew up in in Massachusetts. Heads up, there's a brief and not very descriptive reference to the fact of sexual abuse. So if that's something you want to avoid hearing about, be aware. Here's Sarah Manguso. I want to open with a huge disclaimer, which is that I don't think I can reliably report on my own self-transformation, which is why autobiographical writing is so thorny and so interesting to read and write. Um, so, So that said, for me, most recently, 
an attitude that has dramatically changed is the way I feel about novels. Because hmm. until recently, I'd maintained in this, I maintained this internal barrier between two sets of books. The, for, on one side, the set of all possible books I could ever write. And on the other side, the books I could never write. Um, presidential biographies, my diary, book-length poems, uh, you know, travel guides, and novels. The, um, you know, now that that barrier has fallen, or rather, you know, novels have kind of migrated into the other set, into into books I might someday possibly write, um, I see now how foolish it was to place novels in this other set. And um, because, I, you know, even though I've, I've published books in different forms, um, 300 Arguments, my most recent book is a book of extremely short essays that don't even really, <laughs> they're not essays. I don't know what it is. They're not aphorisms. Um, and so I called them arguments. And so, you know, there, there have been some differences of opinion in, um, you know, how one might even describe that book. But you know, I've written some books of nonfiction. You know, one of them I think could be called a memoir. The others are, I think, more about too many different things to be strictly memoir. I've written poems. I wrote a story collection. And so looking at that stack of books now, I I think I should have been fairly comfortable saying, well, you know, I, I don't know the kind of book that I can write until it sort of just gets written. Something that's been consistent since I started writing is my procedure, which is that I begin with a feeling and I put it into words and then the form of the work eventually declares itself, whether it be a poem or an essay or a book length, something or other, or a collection of small compositional units or uh, one long thing. And, you know, of course, anybody would say, well, the novel is just another form, you know, it, 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 you know, there are, there are a few um, things that are true about novels that are not true about other forms. But, um, you know, you should have understood that, like, you know, as someone who's written verse and prose poetry and prose, like, that, you know, the novel is just, is just another form. It's not this impassable um, frontier. But I didn't, do, I, I didn't cross that frontier until I wrote a novel. And as soon as I finished Very Cold People, I immediately started writing another novel because it just, it had become possible. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm also, I mean, writing a novel is not the same as uh, what Benjamin Bannister did when he broke the uh, four minute mile. Uh, but, you know, the, the legend is that, you know, doctors and, um, you know, athletes and coaches all agreed up until the very day that Benjamin Bannister broke the four minute mile that the human body simply was not built to do such a thing. It just didn't have the, the physical capacity. And the crazy thing is that after he broke the four minute mile, you know, someone else did later that week. And then like several other people did later that month. And it, you know, it, the difference is not that the human body, you know, magically became able to, to do a thing that it had never been able to do. The, you know, what had happened is that people no longer believed it was impossible. And I'm sure that's been included in a TED talk, but you know, it's an example that I that I cling to, um, like Hamlet too. And so, uh, you know, now that now that I you know I have definitive proof that 
writing a novel is not impossible. It's just become a completely um, workaday, normal belief that I, uh, I can write a novel. I am working on a novel. So the first, the first time that I really thought of myself as a writer writing was not until I was in graduate school. Um, I did not do creative writing in college. I did not do creative writing in the first jobs I had after college. But when I went to Iowa, moved into a house, enrolled in the program, all that, then, you know, that really was, I, I crossed the Mississippi and I became a writer. And I lived in a house with four fiction writers who were all in the program. And for one reason, for no reason at all, I was the one poet in the house. And then there were these four fiction writers and they all lived upstairs and I lived in the one downstairs bedroom. Okay. So there's that. And then um, there was just the fact that they were different. You know, I was the youngest. I was the only one who didn't get up early. I was the only one who didn't have a car or a bicycle. I perceived these, you know, this, this upstairs floor full of fiction writers as these people who would go to work on a weekend day and put in hours, come downstairs, have some food, and then put in more hours. And I, I just did not work that way. I didn't, I had not built up the discipline. I couldn't really take myself that seriously yet. I was 23 and I would, you know, I'd write a poem in, you know, half an hour and be done. You know, I, that, that I would be like half done for the week. Like that was all the, um, that was all that my poetry workshop demanded of me. And so, you know, of course the fiction writers are working on longer texts, but they all seemed like these, you know, they seemed like adult, they seemed like adults for one thing. They seemed like mature, experienced writers, and they seemed like disciplined people. And I had just, I, I, I did not have any of those qualities my, in my idea of myself. And I think, you know, that was a fairly accurate perception of the person that I was back then. I was somebody who would write a poem on maybe like a Tuesday and then maybe write another poem on a Saturday and spend the rest of the time doing, you know, all kinds of other things. And, you know, these fiction writers were all like teaching fiction to undergraduates, which is another thing I had absolutely no um, idea how I could ever possibly do. And, um, and I really feel like that house, you know, that, that originating experience really set up a lot of the attitudes that I had about who I was, what I was doing and what writing was. And it, took an awfully long time to start dismantling some of those attitudes that were no longer serving me. That's really interesting because it sounds like you're saying something that has not very much to do with your perception of the genre, but just your perception of the kind of people who engaged the genre. Yeah. Did you, yeah. <laughs> like, you just didn't live on the right floor of the house or oh, yeah, have the right the whole thing. No, I type mean, <laughs> of schedule. I mean, what did you think of, of, fiction itself did you have feelings about the genre specifically or were they these sort of proxy feelings um, you know, yeah, via your no, roommates that's, that's that's the right question um i i was highly suggestible when i got to iowa i had not studied english or american literature formally in any way i knew what i liked 
And, um, you know, there were definitely novels that I love, translated novels, novels from, you know, the English American contemporary canon. But at Iowa then, this is 1997, um, at Iowa then, um, there still was, maybe there still is, I don't know, but um, no, I think it's, it's, I think it's changed since the 90s, there was an attitude that, you know, really the highest um, level, the highest level of, of angels in the fiction canon were um, Hemingway, Carver, um, you know, these just sort of like um, it, it, Fitzgerald, it, they were they were sort of like the default um, omniscient, oracular, canonical voices. And we were all sort of just trying to imitate those voices. It was very male, very white, very stoic. And, um, and, you know, I was young and suggestible enough to think like, oh, okay, you know, like, this is how you learn how to be a fiction writer, you, you, you do that kind of writing. Even though I, you know, of course, I knew there were many other different kinds of writing, prose and poetry. Um, at, on the poetry side, Wallace Stevens and, and um, you know, a, to a sort of more um, imaginary, uh, like, ancillary extent, Keats in the Romantics. But you were supposed to want to write like Stevens if you were a poet, and you were supposed to want to write like Carver if you were a fiction writer. And I was so um, deeply just, I'd, I'd dissolved in this ocean of, you know, white male kind of, you know, cowboy, uh, cowboy writing. And that, that is what was there. And um, I th really think that, um, you know, that it's really, it's, it's, it's mortifying to admit this, but um, as much as I have not written in that mode, and, you know, I think I wrote maybe a couple of Stephen's poems. Um, but, uh, you know, even though I haven't written work like that, I think to an extent, I mean, I, I just, I was taught this sort of, um, this, uh, I was taught to fear and love those voices. And I, you know, for some, even though I don't, I didn't really read that work, I just thought, you know, no, if you're going to write a novel, you have to be the kind of person who will write a 500 page historical novel that requires a lot of research and there are characters um, delivering dialogue at each other. And it wasn't until I was in the middle of writing Very Cold People and um, I was talking about a note that I'd gotten from somebody on a draft who said, I don't understand how to read this in that like you don't have characters or dialogue. I don't understand how this is fiction. And then another friend said to me, a novel, these are both novelists. Another friend said to me, I find dialogue embarrassing. <laughs> he said that. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, okay. Yes, it's going to be okay. I can, I can write this book. Um, but I think really the internal problem was that I had... I had come to believe that characters and dialogue were what made a novel. And I also believed that dialogue is embarrassing. And I could not reconcile those things until I just decided that, I, you know, of course, of course, you don't have to have characters or dialogue. You don't have to have anything. 
I love the idea that you can f- sort of worship something and find its conventions embarrassing at the same time. Oh, God, I mean, it's like I've just I've just explained to myself how people can be Catholic, and yet <laughs> up until this moment, I just thought, how do you do it? You know, there's so many reasons that you know orthodoxy is is bad and wrong and self limiting and and harmful to the self. But you know, here I am. I've been. I was Catholic, you know, we in a Stevens and Carver kind of way, not in a, yeah. In addition to believing I would never write a novel, I also always believed that I would find a way to write about Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts that I wanted to write about was a place where everybody was always highly sensitized to social class, the weather, um, a kind of, um, you know, frugality was admired by definition, um, a kind of emotional poverty was admired by definition. And um, it was a place that was just ideally set up with all of its coldnesses and all of its silences to protect abusers. And it is a place, um, at least at least in the you know socio historical moment that I grew up in. It was a, a place just rife with abuse. Um, it was a, a dominator society. It was you know a, a, a white supremacist, heterosexist ideal, and I had to. I knew I had to find a way to write about it because I when I write about things, I do it in order to. It'll eliminate the material from my working memory, so I don't have to think about it anymore. That's really the only reason I write books, and so this is this is some really old material, as my you know, as a therapist would say, it's really old, and it's really. Um, I had to move to California in order to write this book, and I didn't move to California to write this book. I moved to California, you know, for. Uh, various other life reasons. But um, one of the benefits of moving here was that I could finally see Massachusetts as this separate entity and not a place that I was just face down in. And so once I was no longer face down in it, I realized that this Boston book that or this Massachusetts book that I really wanted to write, um, it was not going to be autobiographical. It was not going to be, oh, sorry, my cat is now um, actively chewing on my headphones. Okay. That's okay. Um, You know, this Massachusetts book, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to do what I have always done, which is to, was write about the things that had happened to me. And, um, and, and, you know, from that point, make a book. I was, I was going to ask then, a question that I don't usually want to ask of a novelist, but it sounded like you were sort of leading to the the point of whether or not this, so this began as an autobiographical book? 
Oh yeah, many times, many times it began as an autobiographical book. I God, I mean, I thought I would, I thought it would, ju- you know, the two kinds of decay is a book that I that that is you know putatively about my uh, chronic illness, and it is the first sort of you know out and proud autobiographical book I had written. Although it could also be argued that everything I've ever written is autobiographical, but that this, this is not that conversation. But The Two Kinds of Decay began as an essay about social class in Massachusetts. And there is a fragment of that earliest draft in the book. And it's um, just one scene, one one section of the book in which I am um, in college at a clubhouse of an arts and letters society. And I am serving the soup at table. I'm, you know, I'm being mummy that day and I'm serving the soup to all of these posh and wannabe posh undergraduates and their guests. And the day that I serve the soup, I have a catheter in my heart because I am uh, receiving a form of medical care called apheresis, which removes some blood, centrifuges it, removes the bad part, puts the blood back in. But anyway... I had this catheter in my heart while I was serving the soup. And then I thought, okay, I should probably write something about the catheter in my heart because that's kind of a weird, um, that's kind of a weird and unavoidable detail that needs to be explained. And then the book just became about the, my, my illness. And since then, you know, I, there, there have been bits, bits of Massachusetts that have found themselves in other pieces of writing, but I had not yet been able to, completely capture, contain Massachusetts in the way that I knew I, I've always known that I needed to do. And so first, the first moment that I thought, you know, I was writing a grant application and I wanted to apply in fiction because at that point I, I thought, you know, I can't, I can't pitch this as a nonfiction book about Massachusetts because it's just going to be like, I'm going to write a Sarah Mangusa book about mess. You know, it, I, there was nothing I could say about it. But I thought, you know what? I, I'm going to write a piece with characters and dialogue, and I'm going to apply for this grant. I didn't get the grant, but <laughs> but but what I wrote was um, part of the book that is now um, the story of Winifred. So in the beginning, I thought. I'll, you know, maybe, maybe there could be a book about this character, Winifred, Winifred Cabot Fish. And, um, and it turns out that there can be that book, but Winifred Cabot Fish is actually going to be in the imagination of the person who is actually narrating the book and having the experiences in the book and, and, you know, um, standing in as sort of my observing eye in the seventies and eighties in Massachusetts. So that, that is how the sort of the little the the bud of this of this book started to open. From there, my guess is that it took a number of years for this book to kind of form form yeah. fully on the page. I I read in an interview you gave that you wrote three hundred arguments while you were, were sort of having your back turned to what sounded like this book. Is that right? That that is true. Yes. Um, I, I didn't want to write a book with 
characters and dialogue. I didn't want to write a novel because I could, you know, again, I had this barrier. I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not a person who writes novels. Like, how could I possibly be that person when I, <clears throat> you know, I have this, this sense of myself and my, my capacities, they are, they are limited. And I, you know, writing a novel does, is not con- included in them. But, um, you know, I, having a project that you don't want to do is a really great way to get other work done. And so, yes, um, 300 arguments was written as, um, as a sort of, you know, I cheated on this novel to write 300 arguments and 300 arguments wasn't even, you know, I wasn't even admitting that I was working on a book. I was just writing on these, writing these very short, um, potent, um, quickly rendered, uh, compositional units that I had no idea how, how I would collect, or even if I would collect them, they were just a sort of like, they were, um, they were a way of letting off some steam or some anxiety about writing the novel. Um, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful pleasure to write 300 arguments. I basically wrote it without even realizing I was writing a book, which is the best way to write a book. And, um, and then it was done. And then, and then, you know, it wasn't even until I was almost done with very cold people that I thought, okay, I guess, I guess it is, I guess it is a book. But then it re- it wasn't until my editor said, okay, you know, we have to, we have to, we, there are some conventions that this book is, is reaching toward that it hasn't achieved yet. Like, um, like, uh, linear chronology, like, uh, you know, a consistency of perspective, a consistency of scene. Um, I'd never thought about scenes before. So, um, I mean, I guess, I guess to answer your question in a, in a, um, in a clearer way, um, I would have to say that the, the process from very cold people turning from its origins into an actual novel was very gradual and took a lot of um, work that felt like work. It, um, it, it wasn't one of those books that just sort of comes out of you uh, fully formed. Um, it, it, it took work. And, and I think that was a really good thing because I, I was forced to learn things about fiction that I had up to that point just refused to learn or refused to internalize. Oh, like what? Oh God. Like, um, you know, you like, uh, it's, it's useful for a scene to last more than three sentences before changing dramatically to another perspective and another scene and another time. Really what I learned from writing this book was how to stay in one moment longer than a couple breaths. I am a skittish writer. I like thinking about moments. Um, the, the writing that I produce naturally is collections of instants. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't think I'm a particularly creative writer. Like I, I don't create a world that doesn't already just exist in me experientially. And I don't really write about or translate those worlds in the form of a story. Like I, I'm, I'm not a born storyteller. I am, but w- what I can do is I can report clearly on moments, on instants. 
And um, it turns out, you know, writing several hundred pages of instants and collecting them in no particular order um, is not a great first draft for a novel. Um, I imagine that uh, there are many easier ways to write a novel. Um, by now, my procedure is it's, it's intrinsic to the way I think, not just to the way I write. Um, and I don't, I don't, I can't imagine writing a novel in order. And in fact, the novel that I am working on now is not something that started out in order. I don't work on it in order. Um, I don't revise in order. I, you know, the way that I revise is I open to a random page and revise that page. And then I go to another random page and I revise that page. I mean, it sounds insane. Like I'm a, I'm a fairly functional person, but I just, I cannot deal with chronology. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't live in it. And I definitely don't write it. So what were some of the moments then in this novel that felt the most important to you to render if if the way you tend to sort of approach book projects is sketching yeah. from moment oh, to moment? Yeah, what were yeah. the moments that you really felt like you needed to get out or get down? I think most of those moments are the ones that I still remember the most vividly from the book. Um, the scene in which the narrator is watching a group of geese slide on a frozen pond. And the geese are, the geese have kind of melted the surface of the pond from their blubbery bottoms. And, and they, they were, they were lining up and then taking turns sort of running and then sliding on their bottoms for, you know, 12 or 18 feet. And then, after sliding, a goose would just get up and go back to the back of the line. And they were just taking turns like children sliding on this lake. And that is something, you know, not coincidentally, that's something that I saw in Massachusetts one time, um, these birds on the frozen lake and just, you know, having fun and being cold, which was such a fundamental experience of growing up in Massachusetts, having fun and being cold simultaneously. <laughs> um, another moment that still feels indelible is something else that um, I, I lived through. And that was um, when I was selling Girl Scout cookies as a brownie. Um, you know, back in the day, you, you knocked on doors and you had a little chart that you would fill out and the, you know, your neighbor or your friend would write their name and the number of boxes of which kinds of cookies they wanted. And I had a ballpoint pen. This was before gel pens. And the ink in the cartridge froze, which is like a kind of normal thing to happen in Massachusetts. And I could no longer use my ballpoint pen to record my cookie boxes. And so somebody, um, and so that, you know, the person in that house just fetched a pencil. And, uh, and then I just kept going and I used the pencil. And these things are not, um, you know, they're not particularly they haven't lived so vividly in me um, until I shared them with people who did not grow up in Massachusetts and, and think, oh, that's actually strange that your 
elementary school floods the soccer field in the winter so that the water freezes and you can you, you can you can skate on it like that that's you know that's up to a certain age your your childhood is just the default experience like it's the default childhood all all childhoods are the same as yours and yours is the only one um and so yeah and you know in sharing these things you you realize the particularity of your experience and in many cases the just the weirdness of um the experiences that you've had yeah i mean I, i've been thinking as we're talking, and it was something I wanted to ask you too, just as I was reading the book, that there's there seems to be this really tight binding in this world, in the world of the book, between coldness, between temperature, coldness, and whiteness, and um, certain, I don't know, maybe a variety of different kinds of abuse or violence. Yeah. I don't know what the word is that you would, you would use. Yeah. I mean, the, the other, the only other, you're, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I would also add silence to the mix or it's a, like a, a silence or an omission or just a missingness um, that also kind of, you know, lards the, the coldness and the whiteness. When I start writing about something, I, the first thing I write is just, you know, an attempt at articulating, like so, describing something is exa an exhausting enough uh, process that um, I, I kind of feel like I'm done after that. Um, to, to write a piece of, um, you know, to write a piece of literature that uh, I'm trying to convince something or, or to write, to produce a piece of writing in order to convince someone of something um, just seems like an awfully big job. Um, and so what I, but what I, what I knew that I wanted to do was to describe the kind of way that this place, this, this imaginary town, but this in this, you know, but it's an imaginary town, nonetheless, in a very real Massachusetts, Waitsfield, um, is, is white, like the way in which it is white. Um, you know, for one thing, uh, Waitsfield, is a place that has had the same um, caste system as it did the minute the colonists arrived in the 17th century. The Cabots and the Lowells, you know, uh, we, we've all heard the little rhyme where the, you know, Boston, uh, you know, the, the home of the bean and the cod where Lowells speak only to Cabots and Cabots speak only to God. Um, it was a joke, but it also was not a joke. And um, it, when I was growing up, there really were the only person of the only people of color were kids who were um, who had to ride the bus in from Boston in order to attend our um, you know better but not great uh, public schools. And I had one friend who moved from Japan to my town in third grade. Um, but these, you know, these people were outsiders. They were even more outsider than I was. And I felt like the consummate outsider, which is crazy because I, um, you know, I, I blend in as perfectly white in wherever, really wherever I go, you know, before I open my mouth, before I say anything about myself or anybody knows anything about me, I am a pale white person. And in uh, in Wellesley, which is the, the real town where I grew up, 
I was white, but my parents were kind of on the edge. My parents were not born white. They were born the next town over. And they were, uh, you know, to use a rather meaningless word, they were, you know, they were ethnic. They were ethnically white. Uh, My father was Irish and Italian, and my mother was uh, Ashkenazi Jew. And the color of your skin didn't really matter. Like, you know, Irish people are blonde, but they were less white than, say, you know, a brunette girl that um, grows up sailing off the coast of Nantucket. And so I guess it's the way in which um, class and whiteness is legible on bodies does not always scan to the way that class is legible in Massachusetts. There was something that I wanted to ask that that has to do with the way you understand the whiteness and kind of class framework of this world as wrapped up with its silence and wrapped up with the kind of abuse that is made possible in it. Yeah, sure. Um, I think the the whiteness and the coldness and also very much the frugality and the culture of scarcity and the positive qualities projected onto people who live in big, drafty, cold houses who don't, you know, who, who close off half of them so they don't have to heat them, um, you know, but there's just, um, there was a, uh, it was considered um, a fine quality to live in a big, cold, falling down house that was 400 years old that had been in your family for however many generations. Um, the whiteness, you know, the whiter, it, it was never really set out right, but um, I think there was this uh, this sort of free-floating belief or series of beliefs that the whiter you were, the colder you were, the scarcer things were, the more of them you had, the less of them everybody else had, and the less you talked about any of it. I think that's where mm. those those qualities intersect. And then there is so much of that, that kind of, that kind of silence, <laughs> like uh, possession, deprivation, and silence that then kind of maps, the book does this really interesting thing where it takes those phenomena and then maps them onto the kinds of possession, deprivation, and silence that surround dynamics of sexual abuse. Um, And that is not something, that is not a connection that would have necessarily occurred to me um, to, to take silence, possession, deprivation, and abuse in one context and, and see it sort of produce produce those things so neatly in like the silences of, um, you know, terrible things happening to these girls in high school and it sort of not being talked about. And I was curious if that was in the book from the beginning, if that was sort of part of the, part of what you wanted to capture from the beginning. Yeah, that was, that was the thing that needed to be captured. The fact that the surrounding culture made it so easy to predate upon the powerless. Um, The thing that kept happening or the thing that keeps happening, the way in which abuse becomes easy and automatic here and elsewhere is the way that 
the same story is told, no matter what the abuse is, it is made into the same story. And that, and that, and that story is a lie. And that lie is this, this is just one time and it will never happen again. This is unusual. This is rare and weird. This is so weird. You haven't heard about this before because it's so rare and weird. It only ever happened to you. It will never happen to anybody else and it will never happen to you ever again. And that is how you maintain silence around abuse within families, within towns, within cultures, and um, certainly within Wade's field. Um, you know, there's a, I think one of the discoveries that the book makes, or one of the discoveries that Ruthie, the narrator, makes is recognizing, um, you know, after so many terrible things have happened, realizing that they've happened because every time something did happen, they were immediately labeled as aberrant. When in fact, the abuse is not just one weird story. The abuse was the setting. The abuse was the default setting of Waitsfield. Um, is that this sort of pattern of abuse being seen as exceptional, but in fact, it's kind of the, it is the environment. Is that something that you were writing because you wanted to be, you said earlier that sometimes you, you write these books because you kind of want to get the idea or the experience out of your head. Was there, was there a kind of a catharsis that this book was performing for you in that respect? I think, um, well, when, when I feel the catharsis, that's how I know I'm, I'm done. And, um, so I, I definitely didn't begin the book knowing that the catharsis would be, at, you know, that the catharsis would take place at the moment that I recognized that abuse was not the story, but the setting. I did, I definitely didn't know that going into it. I, I did know that there were so many stories that had been labeled as, you know, aberrant, as, as unusual and weird growing up and that things had happened to every girl I knew. I was going to say just about every girl I knew or virtually every girl I knew, but no, they, it, things had happened to every girl I knew and, uh, and some boys and, um, and I'm, I'm talking about sexual abuse here. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess in writing a story about, you know, writing a book, writing a novel about it, I was, trying to find a way to harness all of those stories. And initially, I think I must have had the idea that, you know, one, one of the stories would sort of connect to another story. Um, like, uh, you know, one like I, I, I thought I would be sort of creating this narrative of contagion in which, one little aberrant story would sort of ooze into somebody else's life, some other character's life, and then that person would um, have something happen to them that was similar and so on and so forth, and it would kind of spread, and that that would be the story. But that wasn't the story. The story was just one of the characters, Ruthie, figuring out that that wasn't the story. 
that that was something so much bigger and and so much more impassable than a mere story. It was a culture. And Ruthie was, you know, the story of this book is, is the story of Ruthie recognizing that she lives in a culture and that the, that she can leave it and go to a different one. Mm. Why do you think this had to be a novel and not anything else? Any of the many other genres you've sort of experienced <sighs> yeah, it, with or named? This had to be a novel because I realized that it felt so, so the decisions that I make about the decisions that I make about a book's form or, you know, I hate this word, but content, which is the form, but anyway, just the decisions that I make about a book when I'm writing it are almost completely instinctual. They are not intellectual. And one of the things that I, I felt an instinct about early on is that when I made things up, the book made more sense, even though the geese were real. And even though the Girl Scout cookies and the frozen ink were real, the things that were happening alongside it with, you know, there, there are girls that are invented. Um, you know, you, you really, you, you could, you know, I knew that I was writing a novel when I realized I could not map every event and every scene to an event or a scene from my actual life. That's, that's when I realized like the, the form was doing something that I hadn't anticipated and the form was doing something that I hadn't found necess necessary to explore in my work up to that point. That was when the book kind of declared itself to me as a novel. Were you scared? <laughs> Having always believed that such a thing would be impossible? Um, uh, well, you know, I think the fear is something that I felt up into that uh, up until that point. You know, the fear started in Iowa, and you know, I, I had, I had clung to that fear and um, kind of translated it to myself as a reason not to write or not to attempt writing a novel, but. Once I started writing a novel in earnest, um, I didn't feel fear. I felt relief. You know, it was like I finally had a container to put all of this material into that I've been carrying since birth. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.